Why Nickers? Bernard pulls the trigger. And this is a brand. Nickers is a brand. Allen Houston. Nickers means Lord. Once a neck, always a neck. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now tuned in to the Nickish Show. My name is Mo, and I'm here with my partner, Nafi. And today, we're excited to bring in a special guest with us. He is an author and former New York Knicks featured writer for Bleacher Report, Mr. Paul Nepper, who is the author of Knicks of the 90s, Ewing, Oakley, Starks, and Brawlers that almost won it all. Uh, we're excited for the first time ever. We're bringing in a published author, so uh, we're going to bring him right now. Paul, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Good. Hey, Mo. Hey, Nafi. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you coming on. You know, as uh, as my partner said, it's not too often we find ourselves with a published author. So I uh, figured this is a great way to pop our cherry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Paul, we, we, we try to listen to as many of the podcasts that you're on lately. Uh, I know after the book came out, you're on a number of podcasts. And what I noticed was actually that majority of those who were the hosts of these podcasts were those who watched the 90s Knicks live and uh, Nafi and myself, we're both actually 90s kids. So what we're used to is a, a, let- a level of mediocrity or, you know, <laughs> if, if you want to even call it that. So uh, just off the bat, um, as fans at, of the more so on the younger side who didn't have a chance to witness the 90s Knicks live, how would you best summarize that specific era to younger fans who've, who've known this last mediocrity or last bit of mediocrity for the, for the past 20 years? Yeah. Oh, man. It's it's you know, that era is what keeps Nick fans like myself going. I don't know how you younger guys do it who, who haven't who weren't there for the glory years. Um, yeah. I mean, the best thing I could say about it was, you know, the Knicks of the 90s. They played hard every night and they were um, really almost every season in the 90s in the considered championship contenders. Mm. And so there were a lot of, you know, heartbreaking moments with that, certainly. And ultimately, they never got that ring. But any, anyone who, who was along for that ride in the 90s will tell you how great it was. Um, it was a team we could really be proud of as Knicks fans because I said because they, because they brought it every night. They left it all out on the floor. Um, they were a tough, hard-nosed team. And I think New York, you know, a real, a real blue-collar town really um, identified with that. And, uh, but more than anything, it was just the excitement of, of big-time basketball, of, you know, watching basketball and rooting – late into May, into June in some years. And it was, uh, it was amazing. And you really saw how much I talk about this in the book a little bit. New York city is a basketball town for sure. And we haven't seen it as much lately because the Knicks have been terrible for most of the 21st century. (laughs) But when, when the Knicks are winning, that city comes alive and rallies around the team, like no other team, because, you know, the Yankees and the Mets are, there may be more Yankee fans, but there's a significant split there. And there's certainly a split with the Giants and Jets. And But back in the day, if you remember too, back then the Nets were in Jersey. So right. the Knicks had the five boroughs all of themselves for generations. So it went back so long where it was really like kind of built in, passed down from generation to generation. And when the Knicks were playing well in the 90s, the, the city was just in love with them. It was a really a great time. It's beautiful. So that definitively definitively answers the question of whether we're a basketball town or not. I mean, we pretty much are, right? Like, yeah, I think so. It's the lifeblood yeah. of the city. 
Yeah. yeah. And absolutely. Even if you walk around, you know, I, I don't anymore, but I lived in Manhattan for a long time. You walk around, you can't walk more than 10, 15 blocks without seeing a, a basket somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. it's, just, uh, it's, it's kind of like embedded in the city. Yeah. And absolutely. And I know it's a good point that you made in your book itself. I believe you put in the prologue. Uh, where the Knicks just own all five boroughs and the really the rest of the city, Long Island itself, uh, Long Island included, and even parts of Jersey were rooting for the Knicks, even though they had the Nets fans. They still had empty seats in there when they had finals <laughs> games going on over there. So yeah. I, I know you mentioned in another podcast that you grew up in Queens. Uh, Nafi and I are actually Queens kids too. It's it's part of our uh, bio, two kids from Queens. So where, where exactly in Queens did you grow up in? So I lived in Queens until I was about 10. Uh, I lived in Douglaston. Mm. Uh, okay. And then I moved out to Long Island to Jericho out in Long Island, so I do I, I do have Queens roots and Long Island as well. Nice, <laughs> nice. As uh, where are you guys our... from in Queens? Woodside, Woodside, right. and Astoria. Nice. Yeah, yeah. As uh, one of our podcasting uh, friends would like to say, Queens is definitely in the building right now. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, getting right into your book. Um. One of the main questions I had, just because I know we're writing a book. I mean, obviously, neither Mo or I have written one, you know, yet. You know, stay tuned. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I um, like that. Yeah. But um, just kind of with your approach with the book, did you kind of go in trying to be more so a historian or just a, a fan that's kind of went back to revisit, you know, the golden era? Did you try to keep a level of objectivity or just went in like as a fan that's like trying to kind of confirm, um, you know, your good memories or, you know, nostalgia more so? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I I think my fanhood was the inspiration for writing it, but I very much wanted to uh, approach it as as a professional reporter. And mm-hmm. so I, I did do my absolute best to remain objective. And that was a little tricky at times, given my fanhood, because I, I certainly came in with biases, as, as I think anybody who writes a book does. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, you know, the last thing you want is guys you look up to or who, you know, you admired to you find out otherwise that maybe yeah. they weren't great guys, whatever. Mm-hmm. And there were certainly things that I found out about guys that I admired that were unflattering, but that was, I mean, my goal was to <clears throat> report it as, as the research dictated. And so um, I tried, certainly tried as hard as I could to be objective and, and to report it as, as other people were told it to me. Nice. Okay. I mean, yeah, that definitely jumped off the page. You know, like there were certain moments, obviously, where the where the fanhood came into play, but it definitely seemed like a well reported, uh, well reported book uh, first and foremost. You know, so definitely appreciate Thank the you. hard work that went into that. Um, sure. Were there a lot of sleepless nights? You know. Uh yeah yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes you just get um, you know, you get down a a wormhole of in research you know you could go you get you could get on a youtube sometimes on youtube where i've been looking at highlights or i've been looking at specific games and i'd be like all right finish that game let me move on to this game or 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 sometimes it was within the writing process itself and just figuring out how do i all right this is a great story but how do i incorporate it into the narrative how do i make it work within the book and so yeah sometimes i just find myself uh, actually in bed just lying just lying like trying to fall asleep but the it, I, you know, I get so I get so wrapped up in the project that sometimes I couldn't just put it down and go to sleep. I'd be lying there in bed thinking about it. So for sure, <laughs> nice <laughs> dedication. <laughs> 
I believe Mo had the next question. Oh yeah. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> well, one of one of the questions that we actually were going to ask was, uh, you know, how long did you spend researching before you started writing the book itself? Um, yeah, that. So all in all, it took me over two years, close to two and a half years, I'd say. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. The majority of that was researching. Uh, I definitely spent more, so maybe a year and a half of that researching. Um, definitely more time researching than writing. Um, reading, you know, tons and tons of newspaper articles, um, uh, magazines, listening to podcasts, uh, doing the interviews, and then transcribing the interviews, which I've never really had to do before, and that's takes forever. If you have, if you do it for me, you know, like a half hour interview would take me like an hour and a half to two hours to type it out. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's, that's a long process. So yeah, the research was, was pretty hefty. Right. Now pivoting a little bit deeper into the the nineties themselves, I'm sure you as, as many other NBA fans watched the last dance this past summer and, you know, resonated with a lot of what, what was going on with Jordan's bulls and Chicago bulls. And now one of the rumors that really came out that, fans were reminded of was the fact that in 95 possibly that uh jordan received an offer to join the knicks uh and to come out of retirement and um he was offered uh, a nice 25 million dollars and uh david falk uh jordan's agent was was pressuring the bulls to kind of outdo that number now how how much of that rumor are you familiar with or are you aware of and uh how much truth do you think was really behind that rumor yeah, so it was actually '96, um, and there was talk. So I talked to I talked to David Falk, who was Michael's agent. I talked to um, David Checkets, who was president of the Knicks at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and president of Madison Square Garden about it. They spoke about it. They spoke about it at length. Um, it was a tricky situation. They had to circumvent the, the salary cap. So the Knicks only had about $10 million in salary cap space, but they were going to offer Jordan $25 million worth, essentially. And the way they were going to do that was one of the companies that owned the Knicks, ITT, um, had a number of other companies that they owned. Right. For example, one was Sheridan Hotels. Mm -hmm. And one thing that was tossed around was maybe Michael could they give him $10 million in salary cap space and and he would do promotional stuff for Sheridan hotels to kind of make up the other money. Um, but which, which typically is illegal, but David Stern at this time said he would allow it. Um, Jordan, why not? Yeah. Right. <laughs> he basically said, this guy has a marketing capacity. Unlike anyone other, this isn't a normal situation and we're going to make an exception. So Jordan, they, they talked, um, David Falk went back to the bulls and told Jerry Reinsdorf, like you need to make an offer. And Michael told Falk, he didn't want uh, Michael told Falk, he didn't want Falk to negotiate with Ryan Stone. Mm. He said, I've given everything to this franchise. I've done so much for this franchise for a long time. I want them to make an offer that that is that is worthy of, of what I've contributed. And ultimately, Ryan Stone offered $30 million and Jordan said, OK, mm. Jordan swears that he would have left if Ryan Stone didn't make a reasonable offer. Um, what do you have? I don't know. You know, he told uh, Roland Lazenby, a writer, did a, a a great book on the on the Bulls in the '90s, and Jordan told Lazenby that um, after the fact, he said, "I absolutely 100% was going to leave if they didn't make the right offer." Wow. wow. And yeah, it's interesting. It's I mean, it's fascinating, right? And you you could see from the standpoint of Jordan was very good friends with with Charles Oakley. They're still mm -hmm. very close. 
he was good friends with Patrick. Right. And the Knicks had the kind of roster where if Michael went there, they would they probably would have won a championship there. So he yeah. could have gone, you know, and, and of course the marketing possibilities of being in New York, it wasn't like he was leaving for a, a rebuilding team, you know, he was walking right into another championship situation. Um, and so I think it's possible. I think it's possible if he would have he's a very proud man. I think if he felt if he felt disrespected by the Bulls, he yeah, he might have gone. It's crazy to think about. Right, it's yeah. Super crazy. <laughs> I mean, in that same vein, you know, going down the free agent possibility um, rabbit hole, um, there was a chapter, I believe, about the summer of 96, and it was a, an excerpt that really caught my eye. I think it was Reggie Miller was pretty complimentary about the Knicks, um, just his the potential fit with the roster that kind of read as also a shot at John Starks. So I guess, yeah. was there genuine interest from on Reggie's end to join the Knicks? And what was the feeling at the in the organization at the time? Was that something they even wanted to pursue or even entertained in, internally? Yeah, so the Knicks, so uh, I talked to Chekets about this and Ernie Grunfeld, the GM. The Knicks were intent on getting a shooting guard. Um, Starks has had a great run with New York, but Starks is very erratic, <laughs> probably best served as a six-man. Um, but he was starting and um, going into 96, their first priority was a shooting guard. And their the order, their preferences were uh, Alan Houston one, Reggie Miller two, and Steve Smith three. Wow. And the reason Reggie was, it was an age thing that I, I, Houston was, I think, 24 and Reggie was 31. And they thought, and Houston was a really good player. I mean, he wasn't the Hall of Famer that Reggie was, but they thought we'll get a lot more good, you know, he's, just entering his prime, whereas Reggie's probably at the end of it, you know, towards the end of his prime now. Mm-hmm. So Houston was the first target and they made a big offer to Houston. And uh, while Houston was weighing the offer, the Knicks had a meeting set up with Indiana mm-hmm. and they, they told, they gave Houston a deadline. They said, if you don't, if you don't accept this offer by noon today, we're meeting with Reggie Miller and we're going to make him an offer or we're meeting with his representative. We're going to make him an offer. Um, and, I'm not, you know, Reggie swears, Reggie said after the fact he was never going in the Knicks, that he was using them for bargaining power. Mm-hmm. Again, you never know, right? I mean, I, if they would have given him a lot more money than Indiana, I assume he probably would have gone. Yeah. Um, but he was he was definitely sweet-talking the Knicks for a while and because he knew they needed a player just like him. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it was a business decision. You know, guys do that all the time with the Knicks. They do it in baseball with the Yankees. They talk with the Yankees, even if they don't want to go to the Yankees, because the Yankees have a lot of money, and that'll drive up their, their the price, you know, with their, the demand for them in free agency. Right. So I, I guess only Reggie knows for sure if he would have really left. But there was he was the Knicks' second choice, so there was interest. Okay. I mean, on a personal level, do you think um, if they did go down the route, if it was a mutual kind of interest and, you know, they um, they they agreed to terms, do you think that would have put the Knicks at that time over the top to win a championship? Would would that have been the kind of core that would have, you know, put us on the map in that era, especially with the Bulls? And I think Michael had just made his return um, in, in full in that season. So, uh, yeah, it it uh, maybe. I mean, Houston was great, ended up being great. You know, mm-hmm. in like in 99, when the Knicks went to the finals, Houston was fantastic. He hit the big yeah. shot to beat the Bulls. Um, I don't think Reggie was that much better, maybe a little bit. The, the The huge upside to it, of course, would have been that one of the, the Knicks' chief rivals in the, in the late 90s was the Pacers. Right. So mm-hmm. if you take Reggie off of the Pacers, you know, I mean, the Pacers beat – so the Pacers beat the Knicks in the playoffs in 98. 
and they beat them in the conference finals in 2000. So if you take Reggie off of those teams, that might have been the difference of the Knicks getting to the finals or and possibly winning a championship. So yeah, that could have it could have changed everything. Even more more so because Reggie wouldn't have been in Indiana than that Reggie would have made the Knicks that much better. Right, right. Yeah. Now sticking with just uh, the book itself or for for uh, sorry, formulating the book, you have you have it broken out about two parts and I think twenty two chapters. Which chapter would you say was the hardest one to write uh, or took the most research? Um, that's a great question. Um, I would say in, in general, the earlier chapters were a little harder, um, if only because I remember the later ones better. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, you know, so I had more of a kind of outline in my head of to where exactly I was going to go with those chapters. Um, I mean, not, you know, look, I mean, 98, 99, is, it's over 20 years ago, right? right but right. Um, just even given my age, so like the 91 season, I'm dating myself here, but 91, I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the end of it, I was in my early 20s. I just, you know, the memories are a little more crystal in my head and uh, some of the incidents and some of the storylines. So, um so the earlier ones were more difficult in that I needed to do a lot of research before I could kind of figure out where I was going to go with them. Right. Now, coming off memory um, or with that in mind, were there any particular moments where you could have sworn happened in the 90s? Because you remember watching it, but when researching it, it really wasn't the case. And it was a little different from what you remembered. Um, there were some. And I'm trying to remember... I'm sorry. I'm having a. I, I, That's okay. I, you know, you know what it is? they they did happen at the time, but but I've had like the correct version in mm-hmm. my head for a couple of years now. And I, I I don't remember. It's a good. It did come up. It absolutely came up. It's a tricky thing with memory. Even some of the guys that I interviewed, you know, I'm asking questions about stuff that happened 20, 25, almost 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and. Memory is a weird thing. You know, sometimes your memory isn't accurate, as you're alluded to in that question, you know. And so um, some of the times they would recount things and then mm-hmm. I'd have to go out afterwards. I'd research it and I'd be like, you know what? They had that completely wrong. That's <laughs> not how it that's not how and these are guys who played in the games themselves. Yeah. Or or it might be just a simple a simple thing like they, you know, it was it was 98 when a story they told me about a story. They said it happened in 98 and I researched it and that actually happened in 96 or 97 mm-hmm. or stuff like that. Um, and sometimes it was, you know, I, I talked to Oakley and, and he was telling me things about Pat Riley and I like, you know, he had quotes, I have quotes from the time that from like 95 that were completely different from what he was telling me now. Wow. And, and I have to assume that, you know, I mean, he said those things in 95, you know, the multi, I checked, I had like, it was in the New York times. So I was like, all right, maybe the times had it wrong because he's telling me something completely opposite now. (laughs) And then I checked, no, like the daily news has that too. And the post has that too. There's a direct quote and he's just remembering it differently now over time. So I think that's definitely a challenge when you write any, uh, you know, any kind of, any kind of book like that historical book to, to deal with lapses in memory and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Can barely remember what I did two days ago, um, and, <laughs> right, yeah, much less right. thirty years ago. You know. Right. <laughs> um, on that topic of memory, though, I know uh, one of the kind of um, uh, 
things that have been kind of lost to history and that I hear a lot from, you know, older Knicks fans, especially on, you know, Knicks Twitter, quote unquote, is the idea that, um, you know, Xavier McDaniel back in the 90s, um, he was the, he, he would have been the missing piece that would have put, you know, the Knicks over the Bulls. And there's a rumor, a really almost mythological rumor that David Falk, you know, his agent, same agent as MJ, you know, they kind of steered him away from the Knicks. So, you know, did in your research or in the course of your research and interviews, did that even did that come up? And what was the real story behind that? Because, you know, you there's some old heads or older fans out there that will swear that he was the, the missing link. You know, he was that 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 secret part of the recipe that we didn't have or had lost, you know? Yeah. Um, wow. So I asked David Falk about that. He said it's ridiculous. He would never, <laughs> you know, he would never. I mean, I, I don't mean to just it's a good question. And that yeah. is that's out there. I mean, that's out there. People talk about that. Falk, um, I mean, his response is, look, I would never sacrifice the interests of, of one of my clients, you know, right. To, Please, anyone, Michael Jordan or anyone else. Um, so the, the story as I and I talked to X-Man and first going back, McDaniel was he had he was in New York for one year, 91, 92. Mm-hmm. He had an OK season, probably a little disappointing regular season. The playoffs, he was phenomenal. Right. He was great against the Pistons in the first round and then the second round against the Bulls. And he was in Scotty's head big time. He <laughs> was pushing him around, knocking him around. Um, and as X-Man said it to me, and I, I agree with him, the, you know, the NBA is very much about matchups. And mm-hmm. he said to me, he was like, there are players. He, he said, James Worthy kicked my ass. I just could, I just couldn't figure him out. Um, Mark Aguirre, he said, was another guy who, mm-hmm. you know, dominated him, who just was a very difficult matchup for him. He said, for whatever reason, he said, I matched up really well with Scott. My strength gave him trouble. He didn't like to bang with me. He, he liked to be on the perimeter perimeter, and I could bang with him down low. And yet I had the athleticism to kind of keep up with him. And it was true. It was a great matchup for the Knicks. He gave him a lot of trouble in 92 going into the, and then the summer of 92 X was a free agent and the Knicks were a couple things. One, they were very worried about his knees mm-hmm. and the Nick doctors told management, those knees aren't going to hold up very long. Oh, wow. He'd had surgery on one knee and like, don't, don't invest a lot of money in this guy. He's not going to hold up. Mm. And then the other thing was, so the Knicks had a little salary cap space and they wanted to improve on the roster. They had taken the Bulls to seven games in 92, by the way. And um, the deal was with a salary cap is that you can, you can go over the salary cap to re-sign your own players. Right, right. So there's incentive to... So their strategy was, okay, let's get some other people added first. And then when we have our roster pretty set, then we'll go back to X and we'll bring him back because we can't do it the other way around. If we sign X first, we can't go over the salary cap to sign someone else's players. Right. So they made a big offer to Harvey Grant, who was Horace Grant's twin brother. Mm. Um, And they tried to trade for Charles Smith, which eventually got done. But they kind of put X on the back burner and, it came to like September, mid-September. X told me training camp was opening in like two or three weeks, and the Knicks still hadn't made him even made him an offer. Wow! And so the Celtics, so he he and Falk decided they need to look around, um, which they did. And they, he met with the Celtics and Red Auerbach, the great Red Auerbach, was still around. He was the president of the Celtics then. He got Falk and X in a room, and he said to them, "We're making here's your offer. Take it or leave it." And take it or leave it before you leave the room. 
Like we're not, you're not leaving here. You're not leaving here without an answer. We <laughs> want an answer. If you leave here, the offer's off the table. Mm. Wow. X-Man called Patrick. They were good friends. Right. He said to Patrick, hey, man, I got this offer from the Celtics. The Knicks told me they're going to take care of me. Like, what do I do here? And Patrick told him, if they didn't take, if they haven't taken care of you, if they haven't taken care of you yet, they're not going to take care of you. Wow. It's best for your family. Wow. And so X took the deal. Checkets, Riley, they were stunned. Checkets thought he had an understanding with Falk that eventually they would get around to it and they would take care of X-Men. Um, Falk was skeptical that they would pay as much as the Celtics did because Checkets swore for a year of negotiations that they wouldn't. And um, and the, and check it and Falk and X Man's attitude was like, well, you've been telling us all summer you're going to get around to us. Like, training camp starts in a few weeks, <laughs> and what if you don't come through? You know, well, let's say the Celtics sign someone else, and there right. aren't that there are. It's the end of training. It's the end of like the free agent period. Not so many teams have money left. Like, what if we don't take this deal and you you know we could be left out in the cold? So he took the money. Wow. So both sides kind of regret it. Um, I think the Knicks, you know, if they had to do it over again, they would have kept him. And sure. I don't think X regrets taking the money because it was his best option at the time. But he certainly feels like he could have been the difference uh, to beat the Bulls. And uh, he very well might have been. He might have been. Wow. Wow. And I mean, yeah. as they say, the rest is history, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we could we could stay diving into to the biggest what ifs, um, which I'm sure you have done as you wrote this book. Uh, the book yeah. itself is very very well organized. I, I love the historical context and the order that you went through it. The pictures themselves were a nice nice add on, and um, Thank you. I think it was it's very obvious that you wrote this with a lot of passion, and you're probably one of the top experts now in '90s Knicks basketball. Do you would you say you carry that same kind of passion to the, for the Knicks this past decade? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, you know, look, I love the Knicks. I, the honesty. I, still, I, I love, I love the Knicks. I still watched them a lot. It's a couple of things. One that was, um, you know, that was my formative years, my teenager, teenage years, early twenties. Um, I had a lot less going on, less responsibility. You know, I'm a father now. It's, it, Honestly, I mean, when I was 16, the Knicks were the most important thing in the world. To me. <laughs> yeah. Now my son is the most important thing in the world to me. You know, it, mm-hmm. right, it, right. You know, the Knicks are maybe still top five, but it changes your perspective a little. So I'm not quite as diehard in that sense. And uh, and you know the the, I mean, you know, you guys know the last 10 years has been. It's been rough. I mean, not only have they lost, but it's been you know. The, it's not as much fun to watch when they're losing, for sure. Mm-hmm. Part they haven't had the same type of players. Um, you know, the Knicks won in large part in the '90s because they had not just talented players, but guys that competed every night and played hard, and and um, and guys that you got accustomed to, guys that were around for a while. There's been so much turnover with the Knicks, you mm-hmm. know, with the roster, with uh, coaching. So I mean, Melo was there for a while. Um, right. but you know, I got really excited about Porzingis and he was gone and and it's just it's just been a lot of turnover. Whereas the nineties, you know, Patrick was there from nineteen eighty five to two thousand. Right. So you have the star player who you really identify with. You know, Oakley was there for ten years, Starch was there for eight years. So there were a lot of guys they had the same coaches for a long time. So um I got more attached to those guys in addition to 
the the pleasure that they provided, which has kind of been absent. Right. Now, speaking of coaching, uh, Thibodeau, obviously the new head coach of the Knicks, was assistant under Van Gundy. Were there any stories that you learned while doing your research for your book regarding Tom Thibodeau and you know what he might be able to bring on to the Knicks this season? Yeah, Tibbs was – first of all, I have to say Tibbs, you know, you see him on TV and he, he – um, He's got that like gruff demeanor, right? He's always right, like, right. kind of <laughs> intense and a little angry. He, I mean, he was like downright jovial when I talked to him. He was like, oh. just, he sounded like such like laughing a lot and joking around. And, oh, wow. and my, I talked to him before, just for the record, I talked to him before he got the next job. This was mm -hmm. after he was after he left Minnesota and he wasn't, I guess he was doing some TV at the time, but he wasn't in coaching. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the guys talked about his intensity. Um, uh, the guys who who coached with him and and played for him talked about how intense he was. Uh, he's a lifer, you know. He's one of those yeah. basketball junkies, um, always watching film, always figuring out, trying to figure out how to get better. Um, you know, he talked about what a great influence those years were on him, coaching as assistant with the Knicks. And there's a quote I have in the book, but he kind of talks about, you know, he says, Van Gundy was the head coach. And he said, Jeff Van Gundy coached under Pat Riley and Rick Pitino and Stu Jackson. And, and, and Van Gundy's father was a college coach. And then he points to um, Brendan Malone was one of the assistants. And he said, Malone coached under Chuck Daly. And he kind of went down the line of all the assistant coaches and all their experience. They were mm -hmm. extremely experienced had been under a lot of good coaches. And he talked about how they'd have coaching meetings and they'd sit down and someone would say, well, they talk about a, how to defend a certain play. And they say, well, this is how Pat Riley used to do it. And this is how Chuck Daly used to do it. And so he said, I believe what he, I believe the quote was, that it was like, it was like working at the best clinic in the world every single day. Wow. And, and that how much he learned from those years as an assistant coach. Um, but yeah, and he kind of, he did all different roles. You know, I talked to him about, you know, with the Celtics for a while, Thibodeau was a defensive specialist. And right. a, lot of, a lot of times they have, guys have those more defined roles. Van Gundy's philosophy was he wanted all his, all of his coaches to be involved in every aspect of the planning. Um, he didn't like to give them specific roles like that because he felt that having them involved in everything best prepared them to be head coaches themselves one day. Um, and so, uh, he didn't have any specific role in that sense. He was part of everything and he did a lot of, he worked a lot with Larry Johnson. Larry Johnson gave him a lot of credit. LJ, when he came to the Knicks was a low post player and, and, mm. and kind of developed as his back got bad and his mobility decreased. He became more of a shooter, a three point shooter. And of course had the famous four point play. Mm -hmm. And he used to every day before practice, Thibodeau worked with LJ every day, one-on-one -on -one for a couple hours on a three-point wow. three shooting. So he was one of those guys who was just always there. You know, if you needed to get in some work, Tibbs was there to help you out, and he was no nonsense. Yeah, I mean, even just the current day, even Zoom press conferences, I feel like his intensis, intensity kind of just reverberates even in, like, those virtual press conferences, you know, like yeah. attention to detail and all that. Um Kind of to stay on Tibbs a little bit, you know, the word we hear, and I think he himself confirmed it, what was that like, you know, this was his dream job coaching the Knicks. Did he, 
you know, I mean, he's a pro's pro, right? But did he even did he give any kind of indication like to, of that to you when you you know had had a chance to interview him that that this is something he was actively seeking to kind of coach the Knicks at some point or just actively pursue that job? No, he didn't say anything about that. Um, I talked to him. I'm pretty sure it was last summer, summer of 2019. Mm. So, um, you know, at that point, I think people still felt okay about Fizdale. You know, the year before was terrible, but it was like, all right, we didn't have any talent. And we brought in all these new guys over the summer. Let's see how Fizz does with these guys. And so there wasn't, you know, the job wasn't open and I, there wasn't really speculation it would be open very soon. Um, so I, I don't believe I asked him about that and we never really, we never really got into that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I figured Tibbs wasn't the type of guy to even, you know, talk about pursuing another man's job either. So, you know, exactly. seems like a pretty classy dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, Tibbs obviously is the coach of the Knicks now. Um, I know Mo and I were pretty happy about it. Um, mm-hmm. He's his credentials, his resume just speaks for itself, right? But kind of to pivot to the current day Knicks, um, what are your expectations for the Tibbs era? You know, um, do you think he can kind of bring a little bit of that '90s um, aura, that vibe to the current day Knicks? And you know, what are your expectations? Yeah, I, I do. I think uh, Tibbs had a he had a line about the late '90s Knicks. Van Gundy told me this. Tibbs always used to say, um, "Maybe outplayed, but never outcompeted." Mm. Those wow. were the late '90s Knicks. Nice, and I love that. That's a start, right? I mean, mm. that's a start. Like, and I so I feel really good about a couple things. I think they're going to play hard. They're going to play discipline, and I think, um, based on as you touched on, Nafi, his his attention to detail. Right. Right. Um, I think he will be very good for the development of the young guys. Um, he, I think, he's going to set the buy bar very high for them. He's a little old school in that sense and that he's going to push them, you know, and he's going to challenge them. And I think that's good. And, and, and he has the basketball acumen and expertise to teach them. And so I I think, I think the Knicks will compete harder on a, on a nightly basis. And I think, um, I think the young guys will get better. And and that's, that's what we need right now. The young guys to get better. Right. Um, and I think, uh, but ultimately, it's 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 going to come down to management. Can they give him? Can they get him the right players? Right. Uh, but it's it's going to take time. I mean, they're going to they're going to be bad this year. <laughs> they're going to be they're going to be bad. Uh, yeah, the, the talent. Right? Yeah, the talent just isn't there yet. You know, obviously we hoped it better the last year. Um, but more importantly, I think I think for now, short term, like let's see, let's make sure that there's effort, that there's improvement, that there's structure. And kind of those things that we could build on and hopefully get some more talent in the future. Right. And that's basically the recipe for a successful New York Knicks team. Now, with the with the NBA draft in a little over a week from now, are there any particular players you see would be a good fit for this Knicks roster in Thibodeau? Um, yeah, I, you know, I love a point guard. Uh, I mean, they could use so much, right? I mean, <laughs> they, they need shooting. They, they, you know, they could use a good wing. Um yeah, a shooter or a point guard. I, I like uh, I like Killian Hayes a lot, the French kid. Um, mm-hmm. I like Halliburton a lot, mm-hmm. uh, who could play point guard. I, I like Halliburton because he could play on the ball or off the ball, and mm-hmm. I think I think Barrett needs the ball in his lot in hands a lot, um, and he right. could really drive and get to the basket. So I like I like to, I like to have another ball handler on the floor, but ideally, it'd be great 
I don't know if we need like a, a ball dominant one who has the ball in his hands all the time. So Halliburton may be great for that reason. Right. Uh, I like the kid Vassal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a potential, you know, three and D guy, a wing who can shoot. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we got to ride out Robinson in the center in the big spot and teams don't really play with two bigs anymore. So, um, the wing of point guard is the priority and, and those, those are a few guys who I think would be nice additions. Yeah, I think, I th- yeah, I think we both agree in the sentiment. I think our, our favorite are, or at least my favorite are Hayes and, uh, Vassal and maybe a Coro as well. Uh, yeah. I think they'll fit really well with the uh, Thibodeau system. Um, Paul, we're, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. It was a pleasure to have you on. Uh, for those of you guys watching, Paul's new book, Nick of the 90s, is available on Amazon, all bookstores. Um, and we, we bought up Kindle, so it's, it's available there as well. Are there any final messages you'd like to uh, make sure that the viewers hear, Paul? Um. You know, I, 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 I try and be an optimist. The Knicks will rise again. Nice. <laughs> keep the faith yeah i don't know i don't know when but they will rise again <laughs> uh so we'll make sure that the link to the book is available uh in all on, on all podcasting platforms this will be also available there as well uh paul we really appreciate you coming on to the show uh we loved your book we hope that more and more viewers and listeners will get a chance to read it and there's so much so many nuggets in there for for you know readers and Knicks fans such as ourselves that to, to learn from so Again, Paul, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks, Mo. Thanks, Nafi. I really enjoyed it. Definitely. Thanks a lot. All right.